listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. All right, Beatitude number seven, Matthew chapter five, verse nine. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. I think if we want to understand what Jesus is saying here, we first need to set the word peace free from the way that sometimes we we build a fence around it. We kind of shrink it down sometimes. And we take this word peace and we often constrict it to meaning only a certain kind of peace, a peace that's in my heart inner peace, emotional peace, peace of mind, peace in my heart. Now, first of all, how many of you understand, yes, Jesus indeed brings us inner peace, right? Absolutely. He brings us peace in our hearts, peace of mind. So so absolutely all of that's included. But when we take this word peace and we restrict it, and narrow it down to meaning only that kind of peace that exists in the private inner sanctum of my own experience and my soul, then we're, we're restricting the word peace in a way that is not warranted in scripture and it's not endorsed by Jesus. In a world like the one you and I live in, that is drunk on hostility and hatred, it is the kingdom of Christ that brings peace, shalom upon the earth. This is something that the prophets of the Old Testament constantly talked about. I'll give you one example as we're getting close, we're approaching Advent and Christmas. I'll give you one example, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Look at what the prophet Isaiah writes 700 years before Jesus is ever born. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. When the Bible talks about peace, it's talking about real peace between human beings, between hostile groups, between nations, peace on earth as we sing every Christmas, or you might just say world peace. It's the hope of every dippy beauty queen in every beauty pageant you've ever seen. But it's also the dream of the prophets. Every prophet from Isaiah to Malachi dreamt of peace, of shalom, upon the earth. Because ever since Cain killed Abel, the world's been a very unpeaceful place. Well, around the time of Jesus' birth, there was a certain man who was extremely powerful, who was basically ruling most, or most of the known world at the time. A guy named Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the planet, the emperor of Rome. And among Caesar Augustus's many titles, there were two in particular that I just want to draw your attention to. 
Caesar Augustus was called Prince of Peace and Bringer of World Peace. These were official titles that were voted on and conferred upon him by the Roman Senate, and they were inscribed on Roman coinage. If you had a common Roman coin during that day, the front of that coin would have an, uh, an image of the emperor's face, and then on the back side of the coin, you would have some type of symbol, including an inscription of one of his titles, and he had many titles, like Son of God. I mean, there were, there, was, there were numerous titles, but two of those titles, he was referred to as Prince of Peace and Bringer of World Peace. Now, here's the irony of this, and this might catch you off guard. There is a sense in which this is actually true. From around the time of Jesus' birth until the year 66 AD, so you might say uh, about seven decades, 70 years. In that span of time, the world was relatively a peaceful place. The Roman Empire was actually quite stable, quite peaceful at that time in the sense that there weren't really many wars happening. There wasn't really a lot of fighting happening at that time. You could actually say Caesar has brought peace upon the earth. There's a sense in which you could say that. But it was peace that came at a terrible cost. It was peace through violence and the threat of violence. What the Romans would do is they would, they would conquer a people, subjugate them, tax them, and then threaten them and say, if you turn against us, if you try to rebel, if you try to revolt, we're going to crush you. In fact, here's what we're going to do. We're going to round all of you up and we're going to nail you to crosses. That's exactly what they did. We know from history that it was not uncommon for the Roman Empire to round up an entire village, an entire town of people and crucify people by the thousands they would line crosses on the sides of the roads, hundreds and hundreds of them, as far as the eye could see, and nail people to those crosses and leave them up there and not take them down. So you could say this. I mean, think about this. Think of the irony of this statement. You could actually say that Caesar and the Roman Empire brought peace through the cross. Isn't that a weird statement? Rome brought peace to the earth through the cross. Well, less than 12 hours before Jesus himself was nailed to one of those crosses, he says, peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Now, we, we've all, we always hear that in terms of private peace, emotional peace, inner peace in my heart. And I'm not taking that away from you. That's included. Absolutely. But we've got to hear this against the, the backdrop of the Roman Empire, which is how it's intended. How did Rome bring peace? They, they identified others as enemies and fought against them until they had no capacity to resist. And those who did resist, they would nail them to the cross. Well, Jesus takes this same instrument of brutality and torture and he transforms it and turns it inside out into an instrument of peace, shalom. So that later on, Paul will write this in the book of Colossians, through the blood of his cross, he established peace with all things. 
he reconciled all things to himself in heaven and on earth through the blood of his cross. So Jesus established peace, but not in the way people wanted him to do it. You, you remember Simon Peter in, in the Garden of Gethsemane? I believe this stained glass window occurs in the garden. And you remember what happens when the temple guards come to arrest? What, is, what, is, what does Peter do? Oh, he pulls out his sword and starts swinging it. And he's really representing, I think, most of those disciples. This is, this is what they assumed was going to happen. This is what they wanted Jesus to do. Let's mobilize. Let's revolt. Let's rebel. Let's, let's build a militia and put those Romans in their place. In fact, let's take the Romans and nail them to crosses and give them a taste of their own medicine. Now, now, now lest we, we uh, spend too much time pointing the finger at those people, I think if we were honest enough, I think in our, if, if, we, if we had a transparent moment, I think every single one of us could identify that each of us has at least the capacity for that same type of perverse hatred, payback, revenge. Let's put them in their place. Nail them to crosses and see how they like it. And that's what they wanted Jesus to do. And Jesus says, no. I'm not bringing peace that way. Instead, listen, Jesus takes all that hatred, all that violence, all of that vengeance, all of that evil and that sin, and he takes it into himself. He absorbs it into himself. And, and instead of seeking vengeance and calling down 12 legions of angels and charging his followers to avenge his blood, Jesus stretches out his arms on the hardwood of that cross and praise Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So that hatred and vengeance and sin found a place to die. He takes all of the hatred, vengeance and sin into himself and he recycles it and what comes back is not more vengeance, but love and forgiveness. And the very first word out of the mouth of the risen Christ is peace. And if you were to go to an early church gathering, an early Christian gathering and walk through the door, here's how they would greet you. Peace be with you. The peace of Christ be with you. Peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. To be a peacemaker, you must first become a peaceful person. Or maybe I could just say it like this. Before I can bring peace around me, I must first have peace within me. So to be a peacemaker, first of all, we, we have to find peace with God. And how do we, how do we find peace with God? It's, it's just very simple. When we just come to God transparently, humbly, and we're just real and we say, God, I'm messed up. I'm broken. I'm damaged. Some of that brokenness and damage has been inflicted by other people in my life. Some of that brokenness and damage has, has come just through, through some of the horrible circumstances I face. But some of that brokenness and damage is from my own stupid decisions, from my own sin. And, and every single one of us, you know, that's been our story, right? And you come to God just honestly and say, I'm broken, I'm wounded, I'm damaged. And I realize that tr the trajectory of my life, this is not congruent with, with the, the trajectory that I was created for. 
And so I'm asking you, Lord, to save me, redeem me, heal me, make me a whole person, restore me and, and, and teach me how to live my life the way my life was designed to be lived. In other words, teach me the Jesus way of life. And so it begins by, by, with finding forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, and then as we continue in relationship with Jesus, we become formed in the way of forgiveness. And we learn to extend forgiveness outward. We're, we're a conduit of forgiveness. And then we invite others to join us as apprentices on this Jesus way of life. And it works on every level. I mean, we could talk globally, but let's just keep it at home for a moment. Let's just keep it at school. Let's keep it at your workplace. How many of you, you don't even have to raise your hands, just, just kind of wink at me. How many of you, at, whether at work or school, at home, sometimes you find yourself in the middle of these little squabbles, little fights, you know? Wink, wink, <laughs> wink, wink. In those situations, Jesus has, if you're an apprentice of Christ, Jesus has called you to be a peacemaker which means we model and then we extend and then we teach others to, to forgive as they've been forgiven. We receive it and we extend it and thereby make peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You know, we live in an us versus them world, don't we? Don't we? Amen. Amen. We live in an us versus them world, and what we tend to do, and this is just human nature, is we tend to find people who are like us, who look like us, who think like us, who agree with us, who have the same opinions as us, same perspectives, live in the same neighborhood, and we form a group. You know, it happens even without us realizing it, but we, we form a group, and, and then we, we tend, if we, if, we fall, if, we, if we follow our fallen nature, then, then as a group, we, we, we extend hostility to anybody who's not in our group. Now, let's just keep it innocent for a moment, and we see this in the world of sports. Like, for example, two months ago, you know, I come from Louisiana, so I'm, I'm a huge New Orleans Saints fan, but I'm also a mild LSU fan because they're not doing so well right now. Um, if, 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 uh, if they were doing great, I would say I'm a huge diehard LSU fan. But I, my son and I went to the LSU game at the Rose Bowl Stadium a couple months ago against UCLA. UCLA embarrassed them. Let me get that out of the way. But here's what I want to tell you is that, so, so we're, we're showing up at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, and we've got our LSU garb. And we don't know anybody there, but as we're walking through the concourse and walking into the stadium, you know, I don't know how many LSU fans were there. There was a ton of them, but they see us. They see us wearing their colors and they're slapping high five with us and shouting, go Tigers, you know, and all of that type of stuff. And, and treating us like, like we're at Thanksgiving meal and we're part of a family. We're one of, we're, we're part of this us group, you know? And of course, you know, UCLA is them. And so there's a little bit of hostility, not as much as there would be at an LSU-Alabama game or at a Dodgers-Giants game. That's where it starts to get a little ugly, you know? But, um, but you, see it, you see it played out in the world of sports and in, in, in mostly an innocent way. But when we see it played out in just everyday life, it can really become insidious, this us versus them dynamic. I believe it's very unhealthy 
for us as a society, as a world, because nothing unites a group quicker and more effectively than a common hatred against a common enemy. And the world does not have any vision or imagination for how to break out of that. It's been the story of human history. We get entrenched in this vicious cycle of hatred and payback. And here's where we go wrong. And I want you to listen to this statement. Here's where we go wrong. Is when we assume that the line that separates good and evil runs between groups of people. So we have all of these different kinds of groups. We have ethnic groups, religious groups, political groups, economic groups. But we have all these different kinds of groups and people amass in groups. And they call themselves good and their opponents evil. And because they call themselves good, they feel like they can invoke God on their side. But I'm telling you, it doesn't work that way. It's a false paradigm. There's a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn who really exposed this for us. How many of you, is there anybody here who's heard of Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Okay. Wow, I'm impressed. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Soviet military officer during World War II. He was part of the Red Army. And as part of Stalin's army, he was a participant in some very atrocious acts during World War II. Unspeakable. And then through a series of events, they, they, they went through his mail and, and found a, a letter that he wrote where he was critical of Joseph Stalin. And, and you know what happens to people who, who would do that is they would take, they took Solzhenitsyn and they locked him in a, a Russian gulag out in Siberia. And it's there in this Soviet gulag where Alexander Solzhenitsyn somehow or another became a Christian. And he wrote a book about his life years later, a very fascinating book. But he looks back on this time and, and here's what he says. He says, when I, when I reflect back on my life as a Soviet, as a communist Soviet military officer, I always just assume we were the good guys and we were doing good things. And he says, even when I, when I look back, I reflect back on things that I now realize were horrific and atrocious. I still just rationalized it and told myself, no, we're the good ones. We're the good side. We're the good people. So what we're doing must be good. And then he said this. He said, gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good from evil passes not between states, not between classes, nor between political parties, but through every human heart. Wow. And he says, though evil cannot be fully eradicated from the world just yet, that line can be pushed back within the heart of man. That's how it works. There's this fascinating story in, in the book of Joshua. Joshua is leading Israel and he's getting ready to begin his conquest of the promised land. 
And it's on the eve of the battle with Jericho. And there's something really fascinating that happens. I mean, if you blink, you'll miss it when you're reading it. But I want to show you this short little passage. Joshua chapter 5, just a couple verses here. Verse 13. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. Now, get your mind around this. Here's Joshua leading Israel, about to, about to go into the conquest of, of Jericho. And he's on the way, and he meets a man who's going to turn out to be an angel of the Lord, although Joshua doesn't recognize him as such in the moment. And he asks this man, are you for us or for them? Are you on our side or on their side? And the angel of the Lord says, neither. That's astounding. That God is not on our side or even on Israel's side is an idea that, that's just hinted at here. But, but later when we fast forward to Jesus and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's an idea that becomes fully expanded. In fact, this is one of the ideas that, that, that got Jesus in trouble with a lot of people. Let me give you one example, maybe, maybe the best example. So Jesus comes home to Nazareth. That's his hometown, right? He comes home to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is up in the northern part of Israel. It's in the region of Galilee. Just a few miles from Nazareth, just a few short miles, is the border with Syria. In fact, if you were standing on some of the, the hills, the mountains around Nazareth, you could actually look into Syria from there. And the Syrian Gentiles, if you were a, a Galilean Jew living in Nazareth, your most hated, despised enemy was the Syrian Gentiles. And it went back centuries. They absolutely despised the Syrians. Those Jews in Galilee could tell you all the reasons why they hated the Syrians. They could tell you all about the atrocious things that the Syrians had done to their ancestors. And so they hated them. There was a historic hatred. And here's Jesus, this young prophet, you know, he burst onto the scene. He's healing people, opening blind eyes, um, just doing some incredible things. And people are just flocking to this man by the hundreds and thousands. And, and it's just, there's a lot of momentum and people are excited. They're like, wow, this could be the Messiah that we've been waiting for. There's a whole lot of excitement around Jesus, especially in Nazareth. I mean, this is their hometown boy. Nazareth is a tiny little village at this point. Now it's a sprawling city. But back then, I mean, you're talking two, two, three hundred people. And think about it. You're a little village of 200 people and the Messiah is from your town. I mean, you could put up a sign at the entrance. Welcome to Nazareth, home of the Messiah. <laughs> wow. So Jesus comes home to Nazareth and, and it's the Sabbath and he enters the synagogue and he's going to teach and people are excited. They, I mean, they've watched this kid grow up. He played ball with their kids. You know, they know his family. They're so excited about Jesus, this, wow, budding prophet from our, he's the Messiah from our town. 
And Jesus begins his sermon. They like the first part of his sermon. (laughs) But then things start to take a weird turn. And Jesus starts to speak favorably of their hated enemies. Jesus says, I'm not going to perpetuate this cherished hostility towards your your Gentile enemies. And, And how did he do it? He reaches back into the Old Testament and pulls out two stories. Let's look at what he does here. Just these three, uh, four verses, three verses, sorry. Luke chapter four, verse 25. Look at what Jesus says. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. There's a whole lot of widows in Israel during this famine. Look at verse 26. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those Israelite widows, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Second story, verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Both of these people that were healed, that were provided for, were Syrians. And Jesus goes out of his way to pull these two stories out and put them right in front of these Nazarene people. How did they react? Do you you remember? Did they all just say, oh, what a poignant sermon. Very heartwarming message, Pastor Jesus. Just makes me want to go out and hug everybody. How did they react? Well, they tried to throw him off a cliff. So Jesus comes with a message of peace, but they don't like who he's preaching peace to. So they turn on him. And that's why Jesus elsewhere, he says, don't think that I've come to bring peace, except that he did. But what he's saying is, don't think I've come to bring peace within your little insider group and galvanize you and energize you and, 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 and mobilize. Don't think I've come to do that because now, now there's going to be a, a, a choice. Now there's going to be a sword. There's going to be a division because three of you are going to be for me and two of you are going to be against me because of how I'm coming to bring peace because I'm not here to endorse your cherished hatred of another group. And they got all been out of shape with them. See, this is why I think the seventh beatitude flows right into the eighth beatitude. You know, to be a peacemaker means that you're a bridge builder. You're willing to step between hostile groups. And when you're stepping into the gap between hostile groups, you're liable to get shot at from both sides. So the seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers. The eighth beatitude, blessed are the persecuted. We'll get into that one next week. But here's a a paraphrased version of the seventh beatitude that I want to give you. Blessed are the peaceful bridge builders in a war-torn world, for they are God's children working in the family business. You see, Jesus blesses the peacemakers. He doesn't cast suspicion on them. He blesses them. He says they will be called children of God. I want want to show you one more passage, and and then we're going to bring this in for a landing. We're going to fast forward a little bit in the Sermon on the Mount to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45. We're going to get here in, in a few months. But for now, I just want to whet your appetite. Look at what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor 
and hate your enemy. How many of you know, like, this is, this is the way we're schooled in our culture. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. This is the way of the world. This is the way of our society. Love us, hate them. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is radical stuff. It was radical then, and it's radical today. How many of you understand that the testimony of Scripture teaches in a very clear way that you can find out how much you love God by how much you love your neighbor? Jesus takes things a step further and he redefines neighbor as to include your enemy. So you could say it like this. The biblical test case for love of God is love of neighbor. The biblical test case for love of neighbor is love of enemy. Now, maybe you're here tonight like me and you're like, I'm not sure, Ryan, I'm ready for that. This is not something I'm good at. This is not something I practice regularly. This is hard for me. I want to tell you, you're not alone. This is difficult stuff. It takes a while to become the kind of person by God's Spirit that is capable of consistently loving your enemies. And I want to encourage you with that. You know, Jesus took a bunch of guys who like James and John asked Jesus, hey, this Samaritan village won't welcome us. Can we call down fire from heaven and burn them up? Can we just nuke them? Can we nuke this village? Peter takes out his sword and wants to cut off a guy's ear. So, so Jesus understands and he's patient. But he's, and he's willing to work with us where we are. But what I want you to understand is if you're going to journey with Jesus, if you're going to walk the Jesus trail, This is the trajectory he's going to lead you on. You will, by the power of God's Spirit, through your cooperation in the spiritual disciplines, God is going to form you into the kind of person who is actually capable of loving your enemies and blessing your persecutors and loving the way that God loves, which is how? Indiscriminate. God's love, just like the rain, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the good and the evil. God's love just pours out on everybody. And when we learn to love like God, that's when we begin looking like Christ. Jesus calls us to love and bless our enemies because that's what God is like. So when we erase the lines of hostility and and seek to bless everyone, friend or foe, that is when we are engaged in the family business. James says, though, wherever there is strife and enmity, there is every evil thing. That's why he would later say, watch this, the seed whose harvest is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Angry protests will never produce a harvest of righteousness. That's not how you bring righteousness into the world. The apostle James says the seed whose harvest is righteousness is sown in peace by the peacemakers. So so, so here's my last statement. This work of peacemaking 
is too important to be left to politicians. Politicians are people who gain their constituency by appealing to an us versus them group. You got to keep your constituents happy. Easiest way to do that is to continue to hate the other. And as long as you're working from within that paradigm, you will not be capable of making peace on earth. It cannot, it will not happen. That's why there's got to be people who are able to transcend that and say, I'm not going to play that game. I'm not going to get sucked into that. The angel of the Lord says, I'm not on either side. I come from heaven. I'm approaching this from a totally different perspective. But when we bless our enemies and continue to tear down these walls of hostility, that's the identifying mark of us as children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.